We know that it's all about God, but it's good to honour people as well. So why don't we just give Becky and Jordan a round of applause. They're not even in here, but they'll appreciate it, I'm sure. It's so great to have them with us. Yeah, it's great that they were able to come over at such short notice and lead worship for us. They were amazing, weren't they? So, so good. Okay, so we are continuing the Storyteller series. Um, I think I mentioned last week that we were on the home straight. I lied. Um, So I apologise, I repent of that, having kind of delved into this. uh, So we're we're working through the trilogy, aren't we, of lost things. Last week we looked at the coin and the sheep, and then I said this week I was going to finish with the parable of the prodigal son, um, but then delving into it today, uh, for for today, um, there was just so much in this that actually we're going to extend it. So I'm going to do part this week, part next week, and then actually Joanne's going to finish off the series the week after looking at a, a different parable um, as well. So um, I apologise for lying. That's not acceptable. But I think that as we go through this parable today and next week, you'll understand kind of why it is that I've extended it so we can just really unpack this um, a little bit more. So last week, we, last week we talked about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and we recognised that actually those, those parables, those stories, they weren't about things, were they? They're actually about people. They're about you. They're about me. And actually, just because something is lost doesn't mean it's lost its value. And so actually, we said that the value of something is revealed in the manner of the search. And so we looked at this, the the reckless shepherd who left the 99, risked the lives of the 99 to find the one. And then the lady who threw and turned her house upside down, um, just kind of throwing everything, making a mess to find the one coin. The value of the thing is revealed in the manner of the search. And so the emphasis was on the value, the immeasurable value, not of the items, but of people, of you and of me. And so we're going to continue looking at this trilogy. We're going to read what is known as the parable of the prodigal son. It's found in, in chapter 15 of Luke. And actually, Charles Dickens called this the greatest story ever told. He called this the greatest story ever told. So we're going to read from Luke 15, starting at verse 11. If you don't have your Bibles, it will come up on the screen behind me. It says this. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And so he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." 
And so he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. I'm going to leave it there this morning because we'll delve into the next part uh, next week. But I just want to share with you, as I was preparing for this message, I I read something, I heard something that I had never heard before about this story. And actually, I believe that if you've not heard this either, then I think it will radically change the way that we view this entire story. And it's about a Jewish custom called Kezazar. Everyone say Kezazar. It's a fun word to say. I might not be saying it right, but that's how we're going to say it today. And so this Jewish custom of Kezazar, it literally means cutting off. And the idea of this custom was this, was if a Jewish uh, boy, man, lost his, his, his family inheritance amongst the Gentiles. Now this, this custom is talking about after the father has died and the son has received his inheritance. If he then goes away and loses all of this re- inheritance, squanders this inheritance, then he would have to go through this custom of Kezazar. And actually, the picture that we see in this story, the picture that Jesus paints, is actually so much worse than, than the kind of standard setting of this Kezazar. And because what happened is the, the boy didn't wait for his father to die to receive his inheritance, the kind of natural order of things. He actually went to his father while he was still alive and said, give me my inheritance. So in this context, in this this meal setting that we see this story being told, I imagine there will have been an audible gasp from the room as someone heard this story. American author and theologian Kenneth Bailey said this, In all of Middle Eastern literature, aside from this parable, from ancient times to present, there is no case of a son older or young, asking for his inheritance from a father who is still in good health. This was unheard of. This just did not happen. And so what we're seeing here is, once again, Jesus dropping in this controversial element to his stories. He's he's getting people stirred up. He's getting people riled up. He's shaking them right at the very beginning of this story. For a son to ask his father for the inheritance while he was still alive, it was just unheard of. Because essentially what it means is the son is saying to the father, I wish you were dead. He's saying, I wish you were dead because it's only when you die that I should receive my inheritance. So to ask for it now while you're still alive is to say, dad, I wish you were dead. I don't love you. I don't respect you for who you are. I'm just interested in your money. Wow. 
And so this custom of Kezazar, what that looked like was the community would get hold of a large clay pot. And then in this pot, they would put rotten fruit and veg and stuff that just smelt absolutely rank. And they would take this pot and they would break it in front of the sun, releasing this stench. And as a community, they would declare over this child, you are cut off from your family. This was a really powerful event that would happen and because so great was the the disrespect being shown to the father that actually it wasn't just the father who would take on that that shame essentially of what the son was doing it spilled out into the whole town the whole community and so they would all feel that this person this child this son had disrespected not just the father but the whole town And so after this this ceremony, if you like, had happened, they would, not just the father and the family, but the whole town would have nothing more to do with this child. They would cut him off. No longer are you welcome. No longer are you accepted. But you are completely disregarded. We're no longer interested in you. I wonder if perhaps we can be a little bit guilty of treating God like this son treated his father. That perhaps sometimes we we are willing to approach the father and say, God, I need your help in this situation. God, I need your blessings. God, will you step in? God, would you give me this? Would you give me that? And we ask of God, but sometimes without the relationship, without the bit that really matters, But, you know, we can't expect the peace and joy and hope and purpose and salvation and eternal life without that relationship with our Heavenly Father. We can't receive our heavenly inheritance without being part of our heavenly family. And actually, the saddest part is that when we seek after the blessings, when we seek after the the goodness of God without the relationship, we're missing out on the best part, aren't we? We're missing out on the best part. And that actually the things that we might go to God for are nothing. Because the only thing that matters, the only thing of any worth, the only thing that can bring us true satisfaction is that deep and intimate relationship with God. Whether we realize it or not, that is what we're craving. That is what we are longing for. That is what we are chasing after. What we're really searching for isn't the blessing, but the source of the blessing. The source of the blessing. And so if we let this knowledge of of Kezazar frame our reading of this parable, it begins to bring a whole new dynamic to the thing, even down to the context, the setting of where this parable is being told. We talked last week about the fact that actually this is being told, Jesus is hosting a meal. He's hosting a meal. People have come and been invited to eat with him. And instead of inviting the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the who's who of the synagogue, instead of them, he invited to this meal sinners. He invited the down and outs, the the disregarded, the people who were looked down on by those religious leaders. And I think it's possible 
that in amongst the guests at this meal with Jesus, perhaps there are some people who have been on the receiving end of this ceremony. Or perhaps there are some people sat around this table with Jesus that are choosing not to go home because they know that if they went home, the clay pot would be smashed in front of them and they would be officially cut off from their family. And then maybe from the the Pharisees looking in on what's going on in this, this meal, this setting. Perhaps some of them, because they love to stick to the laws and the rules and make sure things were played out properly, perhaps some of them had, had been involved in actually performing this Kezazar ceremony. Perhaps they have been part of the, the rallying troops saying, look, here comes someone who has disrespected and shamed our community. Let's get the pot, let's fill it with trash, and let's make sure he is dealt with properly. I think it's not, uh, it's not outside the realms of possibility that we're seeing in this context both sides of this ceremony. And so it's just really powerful that Jesus shares this story. So the younger son, he asks his father for his inheritance. He basically says, I wish you were dead. And off he goes to a distant land and he, he wastes all this money. And that's the problem with prodigals, isn't it? That they think short term. They're just after that instant, immediate gratification, not thinking about the long term consequences, not thinking about what will come. And I don't know about you, but maybe we can relate on some level to that. Maybe we can relate if we're honest with ourselves that sometimes we just want what's good now and we don't think about what's going to happen. Even if it's down to that extra slice of cake, we want it now because it tastes so good, but we know that that's going to be four hours at the gym later to work it off. And so this son, he goes and wastes all his money, everything that his father had worked so hard for. His father had 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 earned all this this wealth to provide security to provide comfort and the younger son takes it and he just wastes it all away and then he goes off to this distant land and and famine hits and he finds himself working on a pig farm i mean this is a jewish disaster story isn't it not only is he partying with gentiles but now he's working with pigs I suspect that when he first arrived on the scene in this distant land, that's all we know, in this distant land, that he was probably everyone's friend. He was buying rounds at the bar. He was getting people into his sports car and letting them go for a ride. He was Mr. Popular in this town. But now the cash has run dry and he is alone in a strange land with no family, and, and no one who really cared about him. They were just interested in his money. And so he's lonely and he's starving and he's desperate and he's, he's no longer the main man, but actually he's, he's almost less than human because he's been sent out to feed the pigs. Even servants would get fed, but he wasn't being fed. And so he was so hungry that he looked at the food that the pigs were eating. Now, it talks about pellets, but I don't know if you've ever been to a a farm where you can feed the pigs. It does not look appetizing, does it? 
And yet he's so hungry that he's looking at their food and he's thinking, man, if only I could have some of their meal. We can't even begin to understand the, the depths of disgrace this rebellious young man now found himself in. He just didn't see it coming. I think that's part of the story. He didn't see it coming. He was out in this distant land. He was loaded. He was living his best life. It feels good. I don't care what's going to happen in the future. If it feels good now, if it looks good now, then I want it. I am in. Give it to me. I don't know. You might hear Christians say that, that sinning doesn't feel good. Sinning doesn't feel good, does it? Well, if sinning doesn't feel good, then you're not doing it right. Because sinning feels amazing in the moment. It feels incredible in the moment because you get that high, you get that satisfaction, you get that thing that you are craving after in the moment. It feels amazing, but then the consequences hit. Whether it's the next hour, the next day, a week later, a month later, a year later, you will get the consequences. Why did no one tell me about the consequences? And so he gets to a place where even the pig food looks good. It couldn't get worse for this guy. You'd call that rock bottom. You'd call it rock bottom. I believe people only come to Jesus in one of two places, revelation or rock bottom. Revelation or rock bottom. And we wish it was always revelation that brought us back to Jesus, don't we? We wish it was revelation every time. But sometimes, like this prodigal son, it's rock bottom, where things can't get any worse, where the situation looks so dire. We can't understand how on earth we got here. And so in that moment, when he recognizes that things are really not good for him, he comes to his senses. It says he came to himself. Now, he wasn't foolish. He understood this, uh, this, this ceremony of Kezazar. So he knew that he was no longer worthy to be called son to his father. But he said, even the servants are better off than me. Even the servants are better off than me. You know, he'd wished that his father was dead. He'd brought shame on the family. He'd brought shame on the town, the community. And so even with the knowledge of Kezazar, even knowing that in returning to his hometown, he would be faced with this ceremony. He would be faced with what the community would throw at him. Even knowing that, he chose to swallow his pride. He chose to humble himself and to return home. You see, in this custom of Kezazar, once the pot had been smashed in front of the child, once the declaration had been made that you are now cut off from your family, the son had two options. He could either accept that and leave and maybe go and live in the next town or somewhere else, or he could say, do you know what? I'm not going to accept this declaration over my life. I'm not okay with this. I recognize I've done wrong, but I want to atone for that. But he wasn't allowed to just walk back into his father's house. That was not okay under this, this law, this rule of Kezazar. 
In fact, he would have to sit at the gate of his father's house and wait to be invited in. He would have to sit there with people walking past and looking at him and maybe they were tutting, maybe they would spit at him, but they would definitely disregard him. They might throw rotten stuff at him. He would have to sit there in shame and wait to be invited in by his father. And even if the father had so much love and grace for his son, he would be expected by the community. Because remember, the shame wasn't just on the family, but it was on the whole town, the the whole community. So the father would be expected to let him sit there, to let him wait, to let him be looked down on, spat at and sworn at and disregarded by the community. They would expect him to make him suffer, to make him squirm. But knowing all of that, the son chooses to return home. And so he cooks up this speech, doesn't he? He cooks up, cooks up this, this, uh, these words that he's hoping will persuade his father, let him back in the house. Not as a son. He knew he couldn't have that anymore. But just as a servant. He said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he's hopeful. There's some hope here that maybe as I return, I'll go through these consequences of my actions. I will share this this speech that I've come up with. And maybe, just maybe, I will be loud back into my house. And so he sets off on this journey home. Now, I don't know where all of you are at, but maybe you have been running from God. Maybe you've been running away from God and that doesn't need to look like this prodigal son. It doesn't need to look like the extreme of going away and and reveling in prostitution and drink and drugs and all of that. It could be as simple as falling into bad habits that you know aren't right for you. It could be as simple as gossiping behind someone's back. It could be as simple as any of these things that we know that we do that we should not do. Maybe we've been running away from God, thinking things that we know aren't healthy. We're all broken people. We all need God's love and God's grace. And so I want to tell you this morning that God does not see you as broken. God does not see you as broken. He sees you as loved. But the truth is you will never overcome that brokenness until you come home. You will never overcome your brokenness until you come home to his love, until you make that decision to to make a U-turn, to recognize how foolish you've been, to, to see the poor decisions and the mistakes that you have made and come back home to the Father. Now look at this. It says, but while he was still a long way off, the Father saw him and he felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, he starts his speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and and shoes on his feet. 
What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture of God's love and God's grace. And now let's look at this picture through the lens of Kezazar. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran to him. The father knew that if anyone else from that town, if anyone else from that community spotted the son before he did, then they would rally the troops, they would gather up the crowd, they would get the clay pot, they would fill it with the trash, and they would go to meet the son. But the father, this is so beautiful, the father was not okay for that to happen. And so he waited by the door day after day. We don't know how long the son was out squandering this inheritance, but day after day, the father stood by the door, by the gate, looking out for his son, hopeful that he would return, believing that he would return, knowing what would happen if someone else saw him before he did. And so when he glimpsed him on the horizon, he didn't just say that was great and get things in order. He ran, he sprinted to get to the sun first. First century Middle Eastern men did not run. It was not something that they would do. It was not acceptable because to run meant to hike up your tunic and reveal your bare legs. And for some reason, that was not okay. It was not okay. But the father saw his son and he ran. He ran. He didn't care what people would think. He didn't care that he was embarrassing himself by exposing his legs. And on top of that, to the community, his son was as good as dead for the shame that had been brought by his actions. But the father didn't care. And this is a perfect picture of our Heavenly Father. God will do whatever it takes to get to you. He doesn't care if it brings him shame. He doesn't care if he loses his dignity. Jesus came to earth. He left everything that he had in heaven. He left his, his crown in heaven and he came down to earth to become a man. He was God, but he became a man on earth. And then he hung on a cross, naked, shamed in front of everyone. But he didn't care. He doesn't care because he would do anything for you. He would do anything so he can embrace you and bring you back home. And I love that this falls at the end of this, this trilogy of parables because it's the same kind of reckless actions that we've seen in the two stories before. And it demonstrates once again the value, just how valuable that son was to the father, just how valuable you are to God, that he would give up everything, that he would take all of our sin and our shame and die that unthinkable death. Why? So that we would come home. Not filled with the guilt and the shame of everything that we've done wrong, but to remove all of that from us so that we can come home righteous, holy, 
at one with him. While he was a long way off, the father ran to him. Why? It says because he was filled with compassion. And then let's just look at at what he does. It says he ran, embraced him and and kissed him. And and the son then jumping into into his pre-planned speech, he said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father says to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The father embraced him. That literally translates, he fell on his neck and he kissed him. And that kissing is the same kissing that we we see in the scene with the woman sitting at Jesus' feet, anointing him with oil, uh, washing his feet with tears. She continually kissed him. And that's the same thing. It's the same word that we see in this setting. The father just kissed him. He was lavishing this son with kisses. There is so much emotion tied into this act. And then he has the son dressed in the finest robe. We know where the son has been. We know where he's come from. He was filthy. He probably stank. He'd been working with the pigs. And so as he made his way home, the father didn't see the stench. He didn't see the filth. He just clothed him with the finest robe, covering up all of the filth, covering up the stench and giving him a robe of honour and of dignity. And then he puts a ring on his finger. That would have been a signet ring with the, the family crest. And what that meant was that you could press that ring, that crest, into a seal. And that was a sign of, of authority, of authentication for the family. And then he put sandals on his feet. I love that the father didn't even let him finish his speech. He cut him off midway through. He cut him off and, and he put sandals on his feet because he considers him more than a servant. Servants wouldn't have worn shoes, but he wanted sandals on his son's feet to show that he was more than a servant. These gifts, these gifts are emblems of acceptance. The father was sparing no expense. He he called for the, the fattened calf to be killed. There was no holding back to the grace and the love that he was pouring out on his son. The father raced to his son, beating the crowds to him, getting there first. And you can almost sense the urgency because maybe even as he was running, someone else had spotted the son and they were gathering the troops and preparing for this Kezazar ceremony. But the father sprinted to his son to get there first. And then you can sense the urgency quickly, grab a robe, get it on him, get the ring on his finger, get the sandals on his feet. And then together, they walk home. Together they walk home past the crowd, past the person holding the clay pot filled with filth. We don't need that anymore. We don't need that anymore. The father is saying, I've accepted him. I've accepted him and I am welcoming whom I have restored my son once again. 
We're going to bypass the ceremony. We're going to bypass the suffering. We're going to bypass the pain. He no longer needs to sit outside and wait because I am bringing him home. My son was lost, but now he is found. What a beautiful picture. It wrecks me every time. And so the conclusion of this, this parable that we will get into next week of the older son, it's, it's almost a parable in itself. You've got this, this idea of the prodigal son that we've talked about today, but actually the, the title, the prodigal son, that's a man-made title. That is not what God put in there. We put that in. More accurately, perhaps it should be the, the prodigal sons, as we'll see next week. But actually, look at this definition of prodigal. In the, the biblical definition says, a prodigal means spending money or using resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. Or it means having or giving something on a lavish scale. So we know this as the prodigal son. Or maybe we could call it the prodigal sons. But with this definition, maybe it's the prodigal father as well. Because he doesn't hold back. He lavishes his blessings. He is extravagant, almost wastefully extravagant because his son has had everything that he deserves already. And yet he gives him more. How amazing is it to know that our Heavenly Father doesn't hold back. That our Heavenly Father doesn't hold back from us. He doesn't wait to hear our pre-prepared speeches. Even if we start to get into it, he'll cut us off mid-comment, mid-speech and our, our pathetic attempted apologies because as soon as we look up, as soon as we turn around, as soon as we start our journey home, he sees us. He sees you and he runs to you with no care for his dignity, no care what it looks like, no care that it's reckless and he's, he's bypassing everything that should be because we have all sinned, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve eternal pain and suffering. But he doesn't care about that. As soon as we start our journey home, he sprints to us. He says, we are bypassing all that you deserve and I am welcoming you home I am welcoming you into your inheritance it's so good it's so good why don't we pray so Father God we just thank you once again for your goodness it was so good that we we could remember it through the the ceremony uh, uh, of communion of everything that you went through on the cross, of everything that you did for us so that we could bypass everything that we deserve because of the way we live, because of the things we do that are wrong. Father God, I pray that even now you will bring to light, you will bring to mind the things in our lives that we know we shouldn't do and yet we do anyway. And we are sorry 
We are sorry, but God, I thank you that even as we start that apology that you cut us off and you say, I see you, I see you, and I am running towards you with open arms to lavish you with my love and with my grace, and you will pour out your goodness on us. We are so grateful, God. We are so grateful for all you do for us. Jesus, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you. You are a good, good father. You are extravagant and reckless and illogical with the way that you bless us. And we are eternally grateful. So Father God, I pray for any prodigals this morning in whatever sense of that word, that as we, as we recognize the things that we do wrong and we, we, we stand up and we begin that journey home, that God, we would know that we would know that we would know that you are there with open arms. I pray that you would prompt us and nudge us as prodigal sons and daughters to stop squandering our inheritance, to stop living a life that is not the life we were called to live in you and that we would turn around and start our journey home to you, knowing that you are waiting, looking out for us, longing for us to come home. We bless you, God.